cliffcentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Our first show for 2017. Very excited to be here. Greg Nicholson, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. It was a nice break. Also another special guest, Simon Ellison. How are you? Very happy to be back. How reckon do you think we can keep saying Happy New Year? How long? Yeah, how long do you keep saying it? It's a good question, actually. I think Compliments. Until Valentine's uh, Day. You know, I wrote to an Ethiopian yeah. today, yeah. and I was like, Happy New Year. And then I realized, well, Ethiopian New Year is only in September. <laughs> so you also got to be culturally appropriate in your New Year's greetings. That's why we say compliments, man. Just keep it brief. <laughs> keep it, like, disinterested. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Sorry it took us a while to get here, the 17th. That's how we, that's how we do it on our side of the world. Take, like, eight weeks off. Really excited to be back. Uh, we've got a really packed show lined up. We will be talking about President-elect Donald Trump, soon to be President-President for reals Donald Trump, who's being inaugurated this week. We'll also be talking a bit about the ANC succession, a bit about apartheid-era corruption, and specifically Abs and Sanlam, who've been somewhat implicated in this. And lastly, an outlook on some of the stories to watch from around the continent. So, really, really, really packed show. To get started, we've got Jay Brooks Spector on the line. Brooks, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you, and uh, I'm going to put it this way. Uh, Happy New Year until the 20th. <laughs> there we go. After got... that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know where to start. We have a, a new president, the 45th American president, being inaugurated this week. What are you, what are you seeing as the sort of the, the tone, the mood in the run-up? Is there still disbelief about whether this is happening, or is there a sense of, okay, this is the president, we need to get on with it now? Well, I think we're on step five of the 12-step <laughs> for grief and, and uh, anguish. Um, I, I, pretty much, it's been accepted that he won. It's been accepted that however it was fought, uh, he came out on top. Uh, John Lewis, congressman from Georgia, uh, a, a, the doyen of the uh, civil rights movement at this point in the United States, uh, he was at, at, at most of the major uh, civil rights milestones in the South in the 60s and 70s, uh, he's taken to calling uh, Donald Trump the illegitimate president and promised not to come to the inauguration. He's been followed by a number of other Democrats, although no Republicans. Um, and in, in the last several days, Donald Trump has managed to uh, put the fear of God into people in Germany and other parts of Europe to pick yet more fights with the Chinese, uh, to embrace uh, the, the angriest version of Brexit in Britain, and continue his love fest with Vladimir Putin. It, 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 almost, it almost defies understanding. Uh, it's as if he, he read the, um, the, the, text, the business textbooks on creative destruction, but left out the creative part. He just focused on the second word. So, Brooks, um, one of the interesting things that I was wondering with Donald Trump is on on international issues. We, like you said, he has a close relationship or is supportive of um, of Russia's uh, Vladimir Putin. Looks like he might even want to start a trade war with China. He um, has questioned the relevancy of NATO. Um, he seems to support the breakup of the European Union. How how do you think? International relations, U.S. international relations will change after Trump. Can we expect um, some of these things to actually be enacted, or is this just, just hot air at the moment? Well, I mean, part of it is that, that you know, if, if you had to do a weather forecast of Donald Trump, you'd say cloudy with a chance of heavy fog 
In other words, it's it, it's really really hard to tell. He's he, he's given all kinds of contradictory statements. Sometimes within the same breath, uh, he sent out a Twitter storm in many different directions. The good news, if there is any in all this, of course, is he's not president yet, and he doesn't he doesn't have the kinds of checks and balances that actually come with authority and responsibility as well as the opportunity to say what you like. Um, the moment he has to deal with allies in a real way, uh, the British, the, the European Union, the Germans, etc., the moment he has to actually engage with negotiations on one thing or another with China, the moment he actually has to confront the reality of the implications of his comments about the great beautiful wall uh, across the border with Mexico, it becomes different because there are so many other pressures that have to be responded to. You can't tell the other countries what, you're, what to do. You can't simply whistle and expect the Congress to jump to your, uh, to your brief. And ultimately, uh, in some of the more some of the domestic issues, uh, citizens and groups will have access to the courts to try to either block or overturn things that he uh, that he aspires to. But it, one thing you should note, I mean, even before we we start down this path on Friday, is that his popularity ratings have sunk to the lowest of any incoming president since they've been tracking such things. Um, now, obviously, when Abraham Lincoln took over the presidency in 1861, there were a lot of people in the South who were extremely unhappy with it, but that was a long time ago, and they didn't have public opinion polls back then, and the issues were obviously rather different. So, Brooks, some, some in Brooks, the last 30 years. Brooks, some commentators might yeah, say okay. the opinion polls got it wrong before, so <laughs> no, we're not sure if we can get it right again. Brooks, I, w- I want to get in there quickly. Um, well, you know, perhaps a more accurate weather um, forecast for Trump's presidency based on recent information might be cloudy with a chance of golden showers. Um, but uh, <laughs> what, what you I, get to explain that, not me. <laughs> what I want to ask you very, very briefly, because I think we're, we're quite short on time. Um, sure. You know, I don't want to give away your age, but you've been around a little longer than the rest of us. You were around in the Cold War with all the sort of um, Russian hype, you know, Reds under the bed, the McCarthy era. Are we seeing a repeat now? Russia suddenly seems to be the the bogeyman um, of the day. Um, it's coming up in all sorts of contexts. Are, you know, is this paranoia? Is this scaremongering? Or is there something really there? Well, I think, I think it's a combination of all kinds of things. I mean, the, the great irony, of course, is that uh, in the 50s and 60s, the people who pushed hardest for opposition to what was then the Soviet Union um, were, of course, the Republicans. And any, any Democrat who uh, aspired to uh, achieving a negotiated settlement on uh, nuclear weapons or anything else uh, was labeled almost instantly as soft on communism, and that made it very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to achieve uh, success. The difference now is that we're, that Americans largely, uh, if again, if you believe the polling and if you watch the public statements, now, parenthetical moment here, Greg, the polls were right on the gross totals of voters. Uh, they did not take into appropriate account the way the electoral votes in three states would fall, which is slightly different. 
but they did, they called ultimately they called the election wrong. So I'll give you a point for that. Um, but if you go back to the to the main issue, the the Americans largely think that they are facing a resurgent Russia in this case, eager to to uh, reclaim some of its luster when it was the other superpower uh, in the person, especially of Vladimir Putin, uh, who of course famously called the breakup of the Soviet Union the biggest tragedy of the 20th century. And uh, if you look at the map and you see its, its push against Ukraine or Georgia uh, and its active engagement in, in the Syrian civil war, um, you, you, and its serious disinformation campaigns in large parts of Europe, you, you, you see a sense that Russia can be dealt with as a nation and as a government, but there needs to be some resolve in getting in getting the mix right. It isn't simply throw your arms around Vladimir Putin and say he's my brother. And if we can, if if we're good buddies, that's a good thing, an asset in Donald Trump's words. Now, now, Brooks, because we're running it's short, be more complicated. Sorry, Brooks, because we're running short on time, we'll just throw a couple more questions out at you. So it seems that a key reason Trump was elected seems to be the stagnation of real income growth in the middle middle class and the the real struggle in the manufacturing sector in certain parts of America. Um, you see Trump saying stuff like he'll, you know, America's been ripped off and he's going to stop that. But what can we actually see or what can we predict um, at this stage that Trump might actually do um, in relation to the economy and trade? Well, I mean, let's let's get some baseline numbers out there. Uh, leading into the last month of the of the Obama administration, there've been seventy five consecutive months of economic growth, fifteen and a half million new jobs, unemployment's down to four point seven percent, inflation is 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 almost visible, uh, and in family income has now slightly sur- average median average family income has now slightly surpassed. Uh, the levels where it was just at the beginning of the great financial crisis back in 2008-2009. If you look, the the saving grace for a Trump administration, it seems to me, is if he can get the numbers, the support, and the balance of policies right on his, what he calls his great boom in infrastructure building, rebuilding the airports, harbors, bridges, roads, uh, railroads, everything else you can think of, that will contribute to a rise in income because it will disproportionately draw in lower income people and make their work higher in demand. It's going to produce a great boom in consumption for building materials, which obviously will be good for those companies and factories that make the stuff. Um, and it may well lead to a better, more, uh, an easier country to work with. On the downside, and I think there are two things to keep in mind since we're living here in South Africa. One, it will push up demand and possibly inflated costs and or shortages in those building materials worldwide. And it also could increase the cost of construction in countries like South Africa, which have their own needs for an infrastructure rebuild. I mean, thanks for the in-depth answer. I think my, my final question before we let you go is really just about um, still predicting the unpredictable, I suppose. And uh, just looking back to Trump's campaign and how we saw him, you know, push ethnic nationalism and sidelining women and minorities. Do you do you see him continuing in this style um, and embracing, you know, racism, if we're going to call it what it is? 
Uh, or do you think there'll be a change in him being more of a president for everyone and putting putting some of that aside now? Now, nah, look, the man is 70 years old. How many 70-year-olds do you know who suddenly changed their stripes completely? I don't. I haven't met one yet. Um, I, I think you know he is what he is. Uh, he loves he loves that electronic handheld device to send out those 140 character messages at six in the morning or three in the morning. Um, what you will see is a staff really desperate to rein him in a little bit. Maybe somebody will take that electronic device and you know put a rock on it uh, to keep him away from it. But it, it, once the once the process actually begins and you have to govern. Then it becomes, you know, you have to, you have to dial it back, no matter what your rhetorical stance was, and that's been true of every president up till now. Uh, and the only problem with that, of course, is that he really is unique, and maybe he will try to buck the odds and keep going the way he's been. I don't know. It's, as I say, cloudy with a with a real chance of heavy fog and perhaps thunder and lightning on top of it. All right, wonderful, Brooks. Thank you so much, and we'll chat to you after the inauguration. Thank you. I guess we'll have to. Well, we're all here after the inauguration. Talk to you soon, uh, gentlemen. Um, I don't know what to say. Um, I think I think one of the really interesting things for me on this conversation, and we'll get into it further with Simon a little bit later, is obviously what effect it will have on South Africa and the continent. Um, yeah, Simon will allow you to chat on that a little bit later. But I saw some interesting um, documents that came out recently. I think from Trump's incoming administra- administration, asking all these sort of questions about the U.S.'s relations um, with Africa, and sort of giving an indication of where that could shift. Absolutely, I think uh, there's lots to be worried about, and we'll get into all that. Okay. I mean, another thing that I think about, probably just me being sentimental, is just how sort of Obama's presidency will 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 age. You know, the next couple of years, or the next, you know, we we still we still have all these lovely images of him hanging out with with you know with five year olds and this loving guy playing basketball. But there's still a lot of criticism from the Middle East about you know some some not so loving things that he's done. So I really wonder how his sort of legacy will age. But for now, we'll be moving to local stuff. On the line, we've got uh, Ranjani Munasami. Ranjani, can you hear us? Yes, I can. How are you wonderful. guys? Hey, wonderful to hear from you. And Jenny, we've seen headlines over the past week and they've all been different variations of ANC uh, uh, leadership race heats up, uh, ANC divided, ANC this. Is it going to be 12 months of discussing nothing else about but who will be the next president of the ANC and the country? Well, it will be if the if the if the other parties are able to keep out of controversy, like you know the DA um, going off on a on a on a tour to to uh, the Middle East and and distracting public attention. But yeah, this is definitely destined to be the NC year, the year of the succession battle. Um, and has, as has been the case in 2007 and 2012, um, you know the the di- national dialogue is very much centered. Around uh, around that succession battle and the conversation certainly uh, in NC structures from branch level to national level is consumed by this idea of who who is going to take over next. Now, as, as you speak to, I mean, to your sources and, and different members and, I suppose, party leaders, is there a feeling that they're, they're trying to remain united and fight against some of the factionalism that we're seeing? Um, or is it really just about people trying to make sure that they, the, the host they're backing ends up in charge? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a difficult one because you know the ANC always um, puts out this impression that um, you know that particularly you know in, in times of difficulty 
that, uh, you know, its main focus is to unite structures and unite people and to denounce factions. But really, you know, that's, that's very difficult to achieve. Um, and, uh, you know, the latest thing by the ANC now is to try and contain the succession discussion and deny that it's even happening. And that's uh, trying to deny somebody, you know, who's nine months pregnant to say, oh, no, let's not tell anybody until it's, it's, it's the right time. And what is the right time to, to have this discussion? Um, and the reason why this, um, this discussion is happening uh, and, and various people and various organizations within the ANC are trying to lead the discussion is to swing um, sentiments within the ANC and to lead the discussion so that it favors their faction. Uh, so, for example, you have the ANC Women's League. Um, uh, coming out on the eve of the uh, January 8th uh, celebrations to say that uh, Nkosa Zanat Lamini Zuma is their candidate uh, and she's the only one whom they believe can lead the ANC. Um, so what that did then is um, is, is uh, you project Nkosa Zanat Lamini Zuma as uh, the, the, the candidate who will represent uh, women's interest in the ANC. Now, that's not necessarily true because she's, she's a woman, yes, but what else is she saying? What issues um, is she floating on behalf of women? That's what um, the, the ANC Women's League can't really answer. So through that, you can then read that what, what they're doing actually is just to, uh, to sway the field towards uh, their own interests and the interests of the camp they find themselves into. And that's what you'll find from various factions in the ANC, you know, these maneuvers and board, kind of board games to, to try and um, to tilt, uh, you know, sentiments towards their interests. Ranjani, I just wanted to ask you, there's been a lot of criticism of certain media outlets in, in recent weeks because they've written about this and they've described Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma often as um, the president's ex-wife. Um, often in headlines, that's been the, the, the sort of principal descriptor, almost as if that is her only qualification. Do you think that this, I mean, the controversy around this is fair, or, or, or is it true that, you know, she has got where she is because of her connections? Oh, absolutely not. She, I mean, uh, Jacob Zuma and their relationship ended uh, in the late 90s, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and she was a prominent figure in the NC before that divorce and certainly after that divorce. And all her, um, you know, her, the role she has played um, in the South African government and the African Union Commission had really nothing to do with, uh, with Jacob Zuma or their the relationship. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is that her candidacy is viewed through the prism of her relationship with the president because he is such an overarching figure in South African politics right now. Um, and because he, he kind of, uh, you know, dominates discussions, um, you know, on, uh, even uh, with regard to the succession battle, uh, it's about whether his faction will remain in power um, and, and keep its, its, its grip on, um, on, on politics and financial interests in the country. And therefore, I think it's convenient and lazy for some uh, media houses to then um, link Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma to, uh, and, uh, you know, her, her previous marriage, um, through her previous marriage to the president and think that that is what will define what she will do if she is elected president. Uh, and, and I think that it goes much deeper. It's much more complex. 
Um, and people need to to be able to analyze who and what Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma is based on who she is. And yes, her relationship with the president is a factor, but not the marriage relationship, but very much the political relationship. Ranjini, some of the other candidates for, for President Zuma's successor as leader of the ANC that have been mentioned are, of course, Bolek Mbete, um, even Ace Makhoshule. Um, but one of the key candidates, obviously, and has the backing of Kasatu, is Cyril Ramaphosa, the current deputy president. Do we know yet if he has... Uh, sort of, if if he's building a key constituency behind him, do we know if he has a significant block or blocks of the ANC who will be able to back him and actually rival a candidate like Nkosazana Tlumini Zuma? No, he uh, his his constituency is not clearly defined, and that's uh, Sonoma Kona's biggest problem. Um, is that you, at the time when he was out of active politics, he remained a member of the International Executive Committee. But he didn't do much to service what was his constituency, which was the, uh, the workers. You, know, you, should, you should remember his role uh, in the National Union of Mine Workers. And even as Secretary General of the ANC in the early 90s, um, he then did um, command quite a following in the ANC. But, the, the, you know, that kind of dissipated when he was a businessman. And um, and this is the problem with his candidacy now is that with him um, being reluctant to engage properly on on the succession battle, um, he's not defining what he will do as as an ANC leader, um, and therefore it's difficult for constituencies to rally behind him. Uh, so at the moment, what you're finding is that um, people in the ANC members and structures who are backing uh, Ramaphosa are doing this mostly to counter um, the other faction, the other dominant faction in the ANC, which is known as the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So they feel that he is basically the anti-Zuma candidate, and that's why they should rally around him. So it's not so much for what he stands for, but for the fact that he's not um, the leader of that other faction and not associated with that other uh, faction, and they're guessing that he could possibly uh, you know, put that faction in its place and... Uh, um, uh, you know, take the ANC off on another path from what it has been under the Zuma presidency. Now, Ranjini, we've, we've been talking about possible um, who, who may possibly be the next ANC president, but of course, there's a bigger issue to, that's the backdrop of this is that we've seen over recent years is these sort of election races within the ANC and how and how they're held have often deepened um, factionalism within the party and and even encouraged patronage. Um, and we all, we all know now that in, in in the middle of the year, at the ANC's policy conference, there'll be this consultative conference um, tacked on the end of it to try and work out some of these party issues. Do you see any way that the party can, and and with these interventions from from veterans and so on, that the party can actually tackle some of these challenges that that seem to have it on a on a spiral of increasing factionalism. Look, it's very difficult to do that in an election year because it's the, you know the the atmosphere is so charged, and it, the you know anti structures uh, are so polarized uh, around the succession battle, so it's difficult. Uh, to deal with the with the major problems in the ANC, such as corruption and factionalism and patronage, and uh, you know the capture of ANC structures and ANC leaders, all of that is very difficult to do. Um, you know when you when you have this conference coming up, but um, the the intervention by the um, ANC veterans uh, certainly wants to try and deal with some of the problems. 
So um, although it was announced that the consultative conference would be ta- tagged on to the policy conference, they are trying to have this uh, consultative conference earlier in the year precisely to deal with some of these problems. So the issue of um, who attends uh, the policy conference and the national conference. So, you know, this thing of vote buying and, uh, and fake members and gatekeeping, all of that can then be dealt with before um, the policy conference and the, and the national elective conference. So I don't know, you know, yesterday there was a meeting with the vote between the veterans and the, the NC top six. Um, well, top five, Sir Ramaphosa was in Davos. But, but um, you know, there were, there's some agreement that they will work further on it. So, you know, if uh, if that consultative conference can happen earlier as the veterans want to, possibly, you know, the NC could then confront these issues um, and, and there could be some, some amount of healing and problem solving. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do it because I think the people who are in charge of NC structures, so the heads of the regions, the provinces, are, you know, going to be protective over these structures and um, the people in, in, in those structures because, you know, they control them and they, they hold a sway over who they'll vote for. So, I, I, you know, there may be resistance uh, to this intervention from uh, the veterans, for example, because that will then possibly change, um, you know, the, some of the membership, stru- membership structures mm. and um, the affiliation of these people, uh, some of these people in these structures. So you, that could sway the outcome of the elective conference if the people who attend the conferences change from who uh, they want them to be. Thank you so much for the detailed analysis. We know we have to let you go. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you, guys. Right. Bye-bye. Wonderful. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Join in studio by Greg Nicholson and Simon Allison. Now, jumping back to something we alluded to earlier when we're speaking about the Trump inauguration is 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 focusing more on, on, on our relationship to the coming inauguration. Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Now, Simon, you mentioned the, a list of sort of questions that were floating around um, sent by or circulated by the transition team um, questioning uh, U.S. interests in, in, in Africa. The transition team and Trump himself have not sort of mentioned Africa at all. So Africa watchers are scrambling to figure out what Trump means for Africa. And we've all put in our two cents on what we think is going to happen. But of course, this is just guesswork at the moment. So the first real indication that we've had of what the Trump team might be thinking is this list of questions prepared by the transition team and given to the State Department. This is information that Trump wants about Africa. And the questions are – the tone of the question suggests that we are, we're going to see a change in policy. They sort of phrase along the lines of how much do we give in aid to Africa and why is so much of it stolen? Um, why do we bother funding the fight against Al-Shabaab for 10 years and we still haven't won it? Um, why have we not brought back our girls, um, referring to the, the Boko Haram kidnap, mass kidnapping of, of, of school, ch- school children? Um, so they are quite shallow questions. Um, and they, what they seem to indicate is that there are three things that Trump is worried about. Number one, he's worried about the relationship between America and Africa when it comes to aid. Um, and this is something where 
I, I feel that we could see real change in America cutting back its aid budget to Africa. We're already seeing European countries mm. do this already. Um, so it really wouldn't be much of a surprise. We're fitting in with a global trend. Um, and, you know, it, it also fits in with, with Trump's statements of putting America first. Why give all this money to Africa? What do they give us in return? Number two is the Counterterrorism efforts, um, and the, the the tone of of, his, of these questions were interesting on, on that front because they were sort of saying, "Well, we're putting all this money into counterterrorism. What are we getting in return? Why aren't we winning? Why are they still bad guys?" I suspect that, given the very military defense bent of Trump's administration, we will see American counterterrorism operations in Africa continue and possibly even expand. Um, I'm very worried that any sort of breaks on human rights violations um, will also be removed because those are deemed ineffective. We've already heard Trump say he will bring back certain forms of torture. What kind of message does that send to um, various African leaders who may already be committing um, some of these crimes? Um, Kingsley, you're Kenyan. You know what's going on in your country. Um, and a lot of it is funded um, by by the U.S., either directly or indirectly. Um, so expect more funding for African militaries without much in the way of um, human rights consideration considerations attached to that. Um, the third big thing is the AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunities Act. Um, this is the, the deal whereby African countries get free access to American markets. Um, Trump is, the, the questions suggest that Trump is very skeptical of this. Of course, we know he's skeptical of trade deals in general, um, but he is particularly skeptical of trade deals that seem to be more like an aid deal, which is what AGOA has been described of, described as in the past. So I, I think countries that rely on AGOA, like Swaziland and Lesotho, Lesotho especially, I think almost its entire economy, um, is dependent on that AGOA access, could be in real trouble if, if that, if that act is scrapped. How, what about for the rest of the continent? In, if we start with AGOA, how important is, is that deal? And how sizable, um, how much does it help our African export markets? Look, I don't have the numbers, um, but it is important. It's, it's a very major factor for most economies that want to get into some kind of manufacturing. It's also about future growth. Um, so the idea is that, well, you can set up a factory because you know you're going to have tariff-free access to American markets. You've got somewhere to export your goods to um, for the next however long. If that suddenly disappears, then what are those factories going to do? Where are they going to export to? So I think it, it really could have a pretty serious knock-on effect on manufacturing all over the continent. Mm -hmm. I'm interested also in... So when I read that, those questions about, you know, why haven't we um, yet defeated Al-Shabaab? Why haven't we been able to take on Boko Haram and bring back these girls? Mm. Um, my my reading of it was that they would – I didn't think too much about it, but I was thinking, ah, oh, maybe they're not going to intervene militarily so much anymore, offer so much support. But what you're saying is that what you think that they might do at the US now is – Perhaps increase their anti-terrorisms here, but with a particular, a particular, um, stronger military bent, perhaps with more force, mm. um, which I think raises an immediate concern of perhaps sovereignty and, and human rights abuses. Um, sovereignty, not so much, no. I think, because like America has moved away from the direct intervention model that we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. 
um, instead what, it, what it's tending to do in Africa is fund African militaries to do the same job. So rather than put troops on the ground to fight Boko Haram, let's give the money to the Nigerian army, the Chadian army, mm. etc., and let them do the dirty work, let mm-hmm. them suffer the casualties. Um, so I think you know, sovereignty issues might remain intact, but absolutely human rights abuses is something I'm extremely worried about. Um, I've done a little bit of research for, for a bigger story that's coming out later this year on how America funds African militaries and how that money is then used by security forces which go on to commit human rights abuses with absolutely no checks or balances. So in theory, under law, America is not allowed to give any money to um, military units that commit human rights abuses. Mm. But in practice, two things happen. Number one is that the money carries on, you know, it carries on regardless. Um, you know, even though human rights abuses are reported in, say, Kenya, Kenya still receives money. And the second thing that happened happens is that um, countries have become very wise to this law. And the phrasing was was clever. It was um, cannot give money to military units, not militaries in total. So they say, okay, well, we don't need money for this unit, which has been implicated in human rights abuses, but we'll have money for this other unit over here, which is a nice clean record and a brand new name. Um, And of course, it it amounts to much the same thing because the money ends up in the same places and the human rights abuses keep happening. And, And the US has effectively been turning a blind eye to this already under Obama's administration. Now, Obama has at least um, used the rhetoric of human rights, um, and occasionally his government has has you know at least said to offenders like the Nigerian government, "Oh, you need to watch your human rights record, etc." I don't think any of those even rhetorical breaks are going to be put onto um, recipients of U.S. aid under a Trump administration. I mean, was, I mean, straying a bit from Trump. I mean, just when I read some of the questions that were circulated and trying to put. You know, the Trump angle just out of my mind. Um, I think a lot of those are really valid questions about incoming president looking and saying, where are these people were supposed to be finding? Where, where, where are the girls that were, that were lost and were supposed to be, you know, bringing back? Where's the Joseph Coney that was on, you know, UG, on YouTube and Facebook every day, whatever year that was, that we're supposed to be catching? So is there, is there a perspective that says you have a new president who's coming and asking tough questions that should be asked about, how much are we spending in, in region X and, and what's, what's the value in it for us? What's in it for us? Yes and no. So these are good questions. Yeah. There's no doubt about it, yeah. but they are being asked. Um, and certainly, um, you know, U.S. departments are asking it themselves. Um, people are asking it of the U.S. and, and other people mm. involved in Africa. Okay. These are questions that are not new. Anyone, basically what the question suggests is that no one who has any real connection to Africa was involved in the drafting of those questions because they're questions that if you did follow the continent closely and if you were, um, you know, connected into its politics, you'd know the answers to those questions. You'd know why we haven't brought back those girls. You'd know why Al-Shabaab is still fighting even after all the money that's gone in. Um, you'd be asking more um, nuanced questions, I think, sort of, you know, could we be funding 
um, these peacekeepers instead of these peacekeepers in Somalia, rather than the you know the, the big simplistic questions. Um, so it really feels like it's someone who doesn't know much about Africa, has read a few headlines, and thinks these are the questions we need to ask. Having said that, yeah. you're right, Kingsley. They are good questions, um, and I, I doubt we'll be able to see the State Department's responses <laughs> to those questions. But that would be really interesting too. Um, and also be interested to see, I mean, as we wrap this up, just how much the president is able to do. I mean, Brooks mentioned it, just when you have Congress and you have all these interests, mm-hmm. is it actually possible to come in and scrap this and change that spending and change all that? Or is it, does he actually? Exactly. And, and another thing which yeah. we, which we should mention yeah. is the, the main candidate for the State Department, um, under Secretary for Africa. I'm okay. not sure what the job title is, but the, the main African guy in the State Department is a guy called, uh, J. Peter Pam, um, and he has been the Africa head of the Atlantic Council, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. Okay. He does know his stuff, absolutely. He's an expert in the field, um, a very old hand. Um, you know, so, so if he does get appointed, the Trump administration will have um, someone reliable in the African context that, that they can count on. Okay, we'll keep watching that after the inauguration. Now, Simon, you've been doing some thinking about some of the you know stories across the continent to, to watch, and one of the things of the countries you've mentioned is Gambia. Now, I'm a bit uh, embarrassed because one of the last times we had you on was probably election day or the day after, and we were so excited. We were like, "This is this is what democracy looks like. This is amazing," <laughs> and I don't think we had a chance to close the loop on that. So if you only get your news from the Daily Mail, you have a you have a bit of as you should, right? Which we you know we've got a bit of catching up to do. So Simon, if you could take us a bit back, what on earth happened? We had this exciting oh man. We were so excited. Moment. We were so excited. What changed? What's going on? So um, I think Jame came to his senses. He had a, he had a brief moment of um, losing the plot completely and accepting that he'd lost. Um, the election and then realize, oh no, I'm meant to be a badass old school dictator. I can't possibly lose an election and hand over peaceful, uh, hand over power peacefully. So he hasn't. He's basically reversed himself. He said, no, um, there was a technicality in the elections, which means the whole thing is flawed and he is challenging the results in court. Um, so therefore, no one can be inaugurated as president until that challenge is heard. Now the inauguration is due what today's the 17th, so Thursday. Two, in two days' time, we're due to have this inauguration. The court has not heard Jame's application. Now, the reason for this is crazy. The Gambia is so tiny that it does not have enough qualified people to staff its own Supreme Court. So I'm not sure if it's most or a significant proportion of the judges on the Supreme Court actually come from Nigeria. Okay. So they do their Nigerian job most of the year, and then occasionally they'll fly into the Gambia to hear a few Supreme Court cases. Now, this is not as crazy as it sounds, actually. In Southern Africa, we do much the same thing. Not South Africa specifically, because we've got plenty of trained professionals, but the likes of Swaziland and Lesotho um, and Namibia, I think, they have very similar legal systems, and they switch around lawyers um, all the time. Okay. So in the last Lesotho crisis, one of the key players was the, de- I think it was the deputy chief justice, and he was from Swaziland. Okay. Um, you know, so this does happen, okay. even though it's super weird. Um, but these Nigerian justices on the Gambian Supreme Court are currently in Nigeria, busy with their normal job. The Nigerian cases. And they've written and said, look, we can't just rock up for an emergency By session because Thursday. you want us to. Um, we come in May, May to November, I think. Oh, they have schedule time. Oh, I understand. So yeah. you gotta, you gotta, you gotta accept the schedule. Now, there's gotta be politics at play here because surely 
if Nigeria wanted this to be sorted, they would have just said, guys, guys, you can clear a couple of days, go here, the single most important legal case in the history of the Gambia, and then come back. Yeah. Um, so don't quite buy that um, they just couldn't change their the time busy schedule. You know? okay. um, there's a hierarchy of priorities, and surely the entire future of a country um, trumps most other priorities. But anyway, that is the situation. We're not going to have a court case hearing this. Um, we are scheduled to have an inauguration on Thursday. The president-elect, Adama Barrow, is not even in the country. He's in Senegal, um, ostensibly because he's you know, visiting the region, etc., but really because he's very scared for his own safety, and he should be. Um, things are really tense. We know that the president-elect's son died yesterday after being bitten by a dog. On the surface, it doesn't sound like anything more than an accident, but of course the rumors are flying, the conspiracy theories are out in force. Um, things are very tense. At the same time, the region, ECOWAS, uh, this is the Economic Community for West African States, they are preparing a military intervention force. And they've actually gone so far as to put 800 Nigerian troops on standby. And um, British instructors, who are actually there for training against Boko Haram, um, are now training them for uh, sort of how to handle a military intervention, um, which is quite fascinating so the the the, the colonial uh, the colonial influence lingers i'm sure that's the argument that president jame is going to make um, so who knows what's going to happen? Will ECOWAS actually use its military force? Will it have to? Maybe Jame will step aside just in time. His allies within the country are all dropping like flies. Um, so first of all, he lost a lot of the professional associations like the lawyers and the trade unions, etc. Now he's losing ministers. The information minister, um, today it was the foreign minister. There have been reports also today that the justice minister um, has defected. His cabinet, his inner, inner circle is saying, no, no. No, this this cannot stand. Um, you need to go, and I think that's because that's not because they're nice guys. It's because they can see the writing on the mm -hmm. wall. They know that Jame's time is up, and they want to make sure that they are not implicated. So I think that what that is telling us is that President Barrow may or may not be elected, uh, inaugurated on Thursday, but I think he will be inaugurated soon. If if we just look at Ecowas for a moment, um, often. People complain about the ineffectiveness of the African Union, um, and often when these crises happen, about how little they get done. If is ECOWAS and the unity its leaders have shown and sort of decisiveness they've shown over this issue, is that a positive thing? I think so. ECOWAS is, is a fascinating case study in how norms in Africa around changing of power and constitutionalism are changing, and they're changing fast. If you look at a lot of the major players in um, ECOWAS, all of them came to power in peaceful, democratic changes of power. So you've got Muhammadu Buhari in Nigeria, who last year replaced Goodluck Jonathan after an election. You've got Macky Sall in Senegal, who replaced uh, Abdullah Awad um, in an election. You've got Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Um, who else have you got? Can't remember at the moment, but uh, all of the main players... Um, they themselves spend lots of time in opposition politics, and this is important to them. It's actually made, it's, it's, it's relevant to their mm. personal career trajectory, mm. um, and they want to see it enforced. You know, the last, I think it was, was it last year or the year before, the, in the, at the ECOWAS summit, um, all the leaders got together and said, you know what? We want to make two terms, um, the, the, the maximum number of terms that any president in the ECOWAS region can have. And all of the leaders said, yes, this is a good idea. Except, can you guess? 
President Jaume from the Gambia, <laughs> as well as the Togolese president. Um, so, you know, it, it really is it, within the ECOWAS region, these values of democracy and constitutionalism, Ghana's the, the, the other one. We've yeah. just had Nana Kufa Addo elected. Yeah. Well, it's quite interesting that, that of the sort of three most important regional blocks, you've got ECOWAS, you've got the East African community, and you've got the Southern African development region are all pursuing three completely different models, mm. but they're embodying their sort of development values very well. So you've got ECOWAS, which is like going way ahead of the others in t- terms of democracy, etc. Yeah. You've got SADC, which has said stability at all costs. We're going to keep things peaceful, no conflict, and they have succeeded. There hasn't been an open conflict in Southern Africa since when? I, c- I can't imagine. Since South Africa in- invaded Lesotho mm, at is, that time that Mangasutu Butelezi got a bit excited. It's always a great story we're like, um, yeah. for another time. Um, the East African community, on the other hand, has said business, trade, Absolutely. and development, and yeah. we're going to open our borders. We're going to um, we're going to take away tariffs, etc. Et and they've done an amazing job of doing that. So all three, you know, as much as all these these uh, regional organisations get criticised because they, you know, like like SADC is terrible in ensuring democratisation, and the EAC is also not very good at uh, managing conflict. For example, if you look at Burundi. Um, they are doing one thing right. So now we've just got to figure out how to get all of them to do all the things right, and we'll be sorted. Okay. That's such a perfect summary. All of you <laughs> just meet, just spend a weekend in a boardroom and just yes. figure it out. I want to talk about a bit about Angola, speaking of you know, African big men that, that may or may not be, you know, be stepping away from power. Is President Jose Dos Santos, um, is he genuine in his, in his sort of remarks last year that he will be stepping away and that they will be a move of the Dos Santos family away from power or is he simply stepping away from political power and setting us up for his uh, his daughter to take up economic power that is you know a lot more more certain longer to the future okay let's let's tackle Dos Santos himself yes. first will the president actually step aside I think that the prognosis is quite good on this front and there are a couple of reasons for that number one is that Dos Santos himself has been quite involved in the um, mediation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, he's been telling Joseph Kabila, the president of Congo, mm. that he needs to step aside, that every leader must have his day and then retire peacefully, um, and that he intends to do so himself. So he has been walking the talk when it comes to international mediation, which makes me think that that is where his thinking's at, mm. that he is intending to to step aside. Um, number two is that he has anointed or appeared to anoint a successor. Of course, this is all, you know, reading the tea leaves because like solid information is quite hard to get. But it does appear that the defense minister, um, I can't remember his name. We were looking it up earlier. It sounds like the, the, the Mozambican peer, Laurentina, but it's not quite that. I'm on it. Greg will have it in a second. He has appointed a successor. Now, what most dictators who want to stay in power do is they never appoint a successor. They always make sure that they're playing off one faction mm. against the mm. other. So it looks like he's planning for an orderly transition. Um, and the third thing um, that he's done is he's really brought up his children well. Now, you can't say that for all dictators. Um, President Mugabe springs to mind. There's a reason that none of the Mugabe children are actively involved in politics today, and that's because they're not really competent. 
um, uh, they're not considered um, able to take over the reins. Mugabe himself does not trust his children to safeguard his own future because they're not very good at it. There's a lot of rumors that um, they're drug addicts, etc., etc., or addicted to the high life. Um, you know, they're just not suitable candidates. So to give you to give you the chosen successor's yes. name, um, apologies for my <laughs> Portuguese pronunciation, <laughs> but uh, João Lorenco. Beautiful. It sounded good to me. You've got it. successor. So, President Dos Santos, on the other hand, quite is quite different. His kids are competent. Um, not all of them, but 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 two in particular hmm. is, is his son Jose Filomeno, um, who is head of the Sovereign Wealth Fund. So Angola has like put a lot of its oil money into hmm. the Sovereign Wealth Fund, which they invest in, in mostly in Portugal. They own incredible assets in Portugal. Um, so this is a very very clever businessman, very clever guy. He knows what he's doing. The other one, of course, is Africa's richest woman, Isabel dos Santos, President dos Santos's daughter, um, an incredible businesswoman. Um, she also is extremely competent. She can be relied on to keep pulling those same levers of power that President Dos Santos has been pulling to protect him and his family all these years. So there's a reasonable chance that Dos Santos can retire and he knows he's got his own man in the presidency that he's selected and he's got his son and his daughter, um, holding the strings of the, the, the financial strings of the country to keep him exactly where he wants to be. So he can, he can, you know, play golf or whatever retired dictators do um in 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 relative peace and comfort okay so we've got time for one more country are we going to do sudan or kenya let's do kenya kingsley okay uh, and and let's 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 turn the tables a little bit because um you have just come from three weeks in kenya what is the atmosphere leading up to the elections this year is it this year or next year it's this this year okay um so i mean so i found um a lot of of interesting in terms of the when we talk about the sort of post fact era, I just found it interesting how the same allegations would be made about uh, institutions that are conflicting. So, for example, a lot of people will say that all the media is biased against the state. A lot of people will also say that the the media is in the state's pocket, and we're looking at the same newspapers, <laughs> we're looking at the same things, and it's and people will like you know go to battle for these views. And I found I found a lot. A, a lot of those kinds of examples where the same thing is used as evidence of sort of everybody's side and which was, which was interesting to see how sort of polarized things are in terms of what's sort of dominating the conversation. Absolutely. Corruption, um, is, is probably going to be the, the center of, of what, what comes out of this next election. There's a, there's, there's, there's real, I mean, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of, of dollars. If we talk to USD, um, that's, that's disappeared, um, from, from really, really important, Organs such as we're talking health, <laughs> and when when the doctors who are currently on strike, the public doctors, um, or the or the doctors in public hospitals are currently on strike, and you find out that, you know, X hundred million dollars was disappeared, then it's pretty hard mm. to explain explain you know why you should remain in power. So there's a there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of things that that will need to be explained by the sort of sitting party. That's President Kenyatta's jubilee. At the same time, you have to factor in the tribal the tribal element where it's not unfortunately Kenya's still in a place where it's not purely about issues and 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 policy. There's a big layer of whose tribe is aligned with whose tribe and do you have enough numbers? And who has enough numbers? I mean 
there's it's there's still the same lines drawn from the last election, mm-hmm. which is President Huru Kenyatta and his and his running mate William Ruto, who you you will recall <laughs> had had been summoned to the ICC <laughs> to answer a few questions, <laughs> and you have Raila Odinga and, and who will probably be his running uh, mate uh, Salim Mudawadi on the other side. It's pretty close. If you'll see the last two elections, you had just over fifty percent, but but. The, the, the Kikuyu, who's Uhuru Kenyatta's tribe, and who they have been aligned with for the past couple of elections have come out on top. So that's President Mwakibaki, mm-hmm. um, that's President Uhuru Kenyatta. So for now, there's still that 50% and just enough mm-hmm. to make it happen. And that's, and that's, that's sort of where things are sitting. And, and do you see, you know, that the country's still scarred from the post-election violence, um, 2008? Yeah, 2007, 2008, it was December period, yeah. Again, going into elections, are, are we worried of a repeat performance? I mean, this is a question that I asked quite a few people. I think one thing that's, that's important to note because it's, it's a fact is that a lot of the vernacular radio stations that are not in English or Swahili, they're in, you know, Kikuyu and Maasai mm-hmm. and Kikamba, a lot of them are acting as if nothing happened. And they're still speaking completely along tribal lines and who needs to be kicked out of what province and who needs to be kicked and out of what And that same inflammatory language. Absolutely. A lot of the stations are really just going on. As if nothing happened. Of course, this is often limited because not everybody speaks every language. But if you sort of ask around that, and that's really worrying because that is, that is happening. Mm. You know, regardless of whether people act on it, a lot of the vernacular radio stations are, 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 are increasingly, um, inflammatory in the stuff they're saying about we need to kick these people out and we need to do this and defend, defend these, these regions, which is extremely worrying. It's worth yeah. noting that, sorry, Greg, one of the accused at the International Criminal Court yeah. was Joshua Arab Sun, who yeah. was a radio broadcaster. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I was just going to say, Kenya passed a new constitution after that post-election violence. Were there mechanisms put in place to, to prevent a repeat of such, of such, um, sort of events? Absolutely. There is a body. I'll tell you the name just now. There is a body. I know it's read by a man called Ole Kaparo, which is supposed to watch over things like this and, and basically, you know, bring these stations. Uh, you know, to explain what they're doing and why they're doing it. And there's been no response, you know, from that office, certainly. And a lot of people are asking what's going on. A second thing is uh, something that the, 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 the senators were debating was a lot of the things passed in the constitution around the elections and how it should work. How do we declare financing? And a big question is the digital versus manual, um, voting systems. And do you, is it digital? Do you have a backup that's manual? And that was a, that was a massive thing that the, the two parties went to, to head on, you know, as senators. And what, what you can already see is again, the, 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 the lack of a basic bedrock of facts of what does it mean for something to be digital? What does it mean for a backup to be manual? So on one hand, it's, of course it makes sense for it to be digital and a backup to be manual. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's how life works. On the other hand, it's saying, no, the only reason you have a digital voting system and a manual backup is so you can say the digital one messed up and then put your own people overseeing oh. the different polling stations and therefore you how, can do whatever you how want. How did it work? Would you well, vote on a computer and then also vote on a... Exactly, and then you have sort of both. That seems so, like a recipe. So that's a mass confusion. <laughs> that's a that's the kind of thing. Is the electricity in all the polling stations? I wish we had more time, but basically, that laws have been passed to to really water down the the sort of electoral act that was supposed to be really really comprehensive around financing, around voting, around digital and manual systems. So there's 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 already a feeling which which in terms of violence is not a good thing. There's already a feeling that uh, the Jubilee Party that's currently in power has already set themselves up to win. Because if you have the majority, you can pass whatever rule you want. Mm-hmm. And if you can water down laws that, that, that limit your access to power, 
then you know you're already home free. Mm. I think the last thing that's just worth noting is just around the 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 role of the state when it comes to violence. If you remember, a big part of the violence last time was not just citizen against citizen; it was state coming in and being really violent in how they mm. maintain law and order. In quotes, and the the cabinet secretary in charge of this, uh, Joseph Kaiseri, has already gone up and said there will be no bloodshed. And there's two ways to take that. One is that we are going to make sure everything goes great. Second is there's going to be the army and the police. Absolutely everywhere And you guys are not going to start any shit Pardon my language <laughs> And it is definitely the second So we've already seen a sort of purchase of sort of new military vehicles mm. Police vehicles And it's pretty clear that the, the state is going to be all over the country And making sure that nothing happens It's 2pm <laughs> so I have the weird honor now of, of sort of wrapping myself up <laughs> For everyone listening I'm sorry for the very dramatic ending Um Greg Nicholson and Simon Nelson, thank you so much. Ranjani and Brooks, thanks for chatting to us. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We'll try to get Gareth Cliff to give us another hour for next time. Thank you so much. I will see you next week. The Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. CliffCentral.com.